it is a great delight to be here and see so many uh, old friends and, and some new ones as well this morning. I take note that uh, you have to be fairly young to preach here in this church because uh, just getting up on these little stairs is, uh, I had to reach down and be very careful, so I'm sure Daniel just jumps on up each morning, Sunday morning. Well, it is a great joy to be able to be here, and just maybe before uh, we look into the scriptures today to give a little report from Bethany Baptist, and and also I see in your uh, bulletin you have a little report about Living Hope Community Church. It is great to be in partnership with you here at Bethany Community. We believe that uh, this uh, the song that was just sung is going to be lived out in our churches and our community as God works in us, and that is that uh, we would discover more of the joy of God in our own lives, and we'd be able to share the joy of God to, uh, to the people in our community. You know, families and individuals desperately need to know the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, it's great uh, to be able to be blessed by God and graced by God to receive His life in us and to be able to share it abroad. So uh, at Bethany Community Church, or excuse me, Bethany Baptist Church, uh, one of the big events is that we're currently constructing a new facility, and that facility is located off of uh, Route 150 as you go west from the Grand Prairie Mall. And so if you're driving out that way, you uh, can see it. It's uh, fairly prominent now. It's about a mile west of Grand Prairie Mall, and we hope to be able to be in that facility uh, early this next year. And so pray for us. Pray specifically also uh, for... Uh, the sale of our current building, uh, we're still hopeful and, and we've still received communication from the doctors next door that they're planning to purchase it after they're through with a, a lawsuit that they're in, but uh, just pray for God's, uh, God's grace and resolution to that and, and uh, for his provision. Also, I mentioned Living Hope Community Church and we uh, had the joy of being able to plant that church in Bartonville uh, and they now, they've been uh, in a much, uh, much, uh, worse facility than, than this church has started in. They were in a, in a uh, uh, sort of school, sort of auditorium, but it's, uh, was un, it's unair conditioned and, and very plain, and so they're going to be in their new building. I think today is their first uh, worship service in their new building in Bartonville, and so praise God for that, and let's continue to pray for one another as we work together. Well, today uh, we want to look at the scriptures and from Genesis chapter 1 today, Genesis chapter 1, and uh, today I want to focus on the truth of the scripture regarding the sacredness of human life. Now we uh, together in our, in our churches have decided every January we're going to make a special focus on this particular issue but uh, the Lord has laid it on my heart to deliver this message to you as well today. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31 is what we're going to be looking at. I'm going to read from the New International Version. I know that's a little bit heretical here, but uh, let's, uh, let's stand as we read the scripture today. Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let the land produced living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, 
and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I will give every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree that has fruit with it, with seed in it. And they will be yours for food. To all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. May God encourage us today as we've read the scriptures. Please be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be able to come to you today and to hear your spirit speak to us through your word. Thank you, Father, that you are a personal God, that uh, you created us in your image so that we can have relationship with you. Thank you also, God, that you are the transcendent God. You are not part of creation, but you are above it and beyond it, and that you are exceedingly great and awesome. Thank you, Father, that in creating us, you created us to know you and to enjoy you forever. You created each person with dignity, a life that is sacred, because we are, we are fashioned in your likeness. Father, I pray that, that we would consider deeply the profound implications of that very truth for us. The profound implications in our relationship with you and the profound implications that it would have in our relationships with others. Profound implications that it would have for our culture, for our society, what we stand for, what we, what we, uh, what we battle over. So, Father, I pray that we'd be faithful. Father, help us to be proclaimers of your truth, of your gospel, and of your righteousness. Father, we pray you'd strengthen your church and do so deeply in every way. Father, your, your church is designed by you to be such a lovely, lovely organism, a, a lovely body, a lovely bride. Oftentimes, Lord, sin or false teaching enters into a church and, and mars her beauty. And so, Father, I pray that you'd protect us. We recognize that we are vulnerable Vulnerable, vulnerable to temptation. We're vulnerable to false teaching and to believing lies. Father, protect us by your word and by your spirit. Help us, Father, to make ourselves ready by putting on your full armor each day so that we might stand, stand in the face of the, the evil one as he assaults us with his flaming arrows. Father, that we might be able to be used by you 
to acknowledge the work that you've called each individual believer to accomplish in this world and and together as a church then to walk forward for your glory. Father, help us have a passion for your namesake, Lord. Help us not to be so consumed with our own namesake and our own agendas and, and our own selfish desires, Father, that we would, would lose sight of, of your greatness and of our very purpose and significance and meaning of life. Father, help us today to listen to your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after a speech, pro-life activist Penny Lee was approached by an old man. Weeping, this elderly gentleman told her the following story. He said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. I attended church since I was a small boy. We had heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews, but like most people today in this country, we tried to distance ourselves from the reality of what was really taking place. What could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we would hear the whistle from a distance and then the clacking of the wheels moving along the track. We became disturbed when one Sunday we noticed cries coming from the train as it was passing by. We grimly realized that the train was carrying Jews. They were like cattle in those cars. Week after week, that train whistle would blow, and we would dread to hear the sound of those old wheels because we knew that the Jews would begin to cry out to us as they passed by our church. It was so terribly disturbing. We could do nothing to help these poor, miserable people, yet their screams tormented us. We knew exactly at what time that whistle would blow, and we decided the only way to keep from being so disturbed by the cries was to start singing our hymns. By the time that the train came rumbling past the churchyard, we were singing at the top of our voices. If some of the screams reached our ears, we'd just sing a little louder until we could no longer hear them anymore. Years have passed, and no one talks about it much anymore, but I can still hear that train whistle in my sleep. I can still hear them crying out for help. God forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene. Now, so many years later, I see it happening all over again in America. God forgive you as Christians, for you have blocked out the screams of millions of your own children. The Holocaust is here. The response is the same as it was in my country. Silence. I pray this morning that the truth of God's word will awaken our conscience as we consider the subject of the sanctity of human life. Some scoff today at the comparison between the Holocaust and the practice of abortion in our own country. I acknowledge that there are some differences between the two. Abortion is not typically motivated by severe malice toward the victims the way the Holocaust was. Abortion does not prolong the suffering of the victim like the Holocaust did. There are some differences between the two. But the similarities between the Holocaust and the practice of abortion are striking. Both treat certain human beings as though they had no human rights. 
Both result in the senseless killing of multitudes of people, people who are made in the image of God. Both were legalized by a government that defied God. Both reward individuals who are active parties to the killings with political offices and financial wealth. The Holocaust stole the lives from over 6 million Jews. The abortion industry has stolen the lives from 50 million unborn children in the United States since 1973. That was the year that the Supreme Court ruled that babies could be killed in the womb through all nine months of pregnancy. Today, one out of every three babies conceived in the United States are aborted. Aborted with legal sanction and with society's approval. Now the sins of our nation are many and varied, but this sin is the greatest one that our nation embraces and rewards. Christians, God would not have us to sing louder. Our faith is not irrelevant to our times. We must not grow weary of thinking about this issue. We cannot capitulate to our culture. We are to be salt and light in this world. We are the conscience of a nation. I pray that this message today will inform those who are without knowledge, that it will quicken those who have grown apathetic, that it will strengthen those who are tempted, that it will offer mercy to those who have sinned, and that will encourage those who are actively serving to uphold the sanctity of human life. Some suggest that we should not talk about this issue in church because it is political, and that the church should stay out of politics. Now it is true that disaster follows the melding of the church and the state into one institution. But this does not suggest that the church must remain mute on the evils of the state. God speaks to governments as well as to individuals. And the church is the pillar in support of the truth. The church is God's megaphone to a darkened world. We are God's ambassadors. Bold in our proclamations and unyielding in our resolve. This issue of abortion is not primarily m political, but it's theological. It relates to God. For God has spoken on this very issue. Our vigorous defense of life has nothing to do with a drive to get one of our own into a political office. It has everything to do with our calling to be faithful to God. It might surprise you to learn that the first recorded political appeal from the church to the state over this issue of abortion took place not in the 1970s when the moral majority was started, but took place in the second century. A Christian by the name of Athenagoras made a plea to the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius in support of the unborn. Listen to what he wrote. He represented the Christian church to this emperor. And he says, we say, the church of Jesus Christ, we say that women who use drugs to bring on abortion commit murder. And we'll give an account to God for the abortion. For we regard the very fetus in the womb as being crea a created being and therefore an object of God's care. Protest against abortion did not begin with the rise of the Christian right. It has been con the consistent doctrine of the faith since the beginning of the church. So we approach this subject today with scripture in view. We have our Bibles open to Genesis chapter 1. The message is simple. Man is made in the image of God to know him and to enjoy him. 
man is endowed by his creator with certain inalienable rights, the right to life and liberty. The context of our passage is the creation of the world. We read in the very first verse of Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God himself is the creator of all that exists. Nothing was made that has been made apart from his hand. The creation account is described in great specific detail then as you read through Genesis 1 and verses 3 through 29. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5 are all recorded there. And now in verse 26, we come, 24, we come to day 6. And this day is set above the other days, for on this day God creates man, the apex of his creation. And from this point in the story of the Bible, God focuses on his unique relationship with man. Man becomes the, the, the focal point of his creation and is made uniquely in his image to bring him glory, to lift him up, to know him, enjoy him. Man is the object of God's specific love, God's specific and unique grace. And from Genesis 1, we learn four important truths about the nature of man. If you're taking notes, you might just jot these, jot these four points down. I think that you have a page in your bulletin. Now, we are primarily going to deal with points 1 and 2. Point 3 is very, will be very brief, and then point 4 will mainly make some applications. The f first foundational truth, man is created by God. There's so much more to say from Genesis 1, but let's look at these four specific truths about the nature of man that's presented here. Second foundational truth, man is created in the image of God. Then man is created male and female. It's a third foundational truth. And finally, man was created in the state of holiness. So the first truth we want to consider today is that man is created by God. Look at verse 26 with me. Then God said, let us make man. Let us make man. Every human being is a creation of God. With Adam, he used the dust of the earth in his creation. With us, God uses the sperm and the egg inside of a man and a woman. But each one of us are uniquely created by God. We are not just the result of random, mechanical, and biological processes. To be sure, biological processes are part of God's methodology, but God is directly involved in the creation of each human being. Listen to what God teaches us through his servant David in Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. <coughs> My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, even before one of them came to be creation of each baby in the womb is God's special handiwork. That's what David is saying. Before conception, God designed that person, ordained the life of that person from conception all the way to that person's dying breath. And then on into eternity as a plan. God takes special care in his creation of each human being from the beginning of his work in the womb of a mom 
This is a fairly simple truth about our nature, but it, it carries some huge implications for us. I'm just going to look at one of those implications for now. That implication is this. Because each of us are created by God, we possess purpose and meaning. Now, now that, that is profound. Perhaps we have just grown up with that truth, but that is a profound truth about our nature, about who we are. God does nothing without a purpose. And the purpose he has placed upon our lives as he created us is a transcendent purpose. That is to say that it goes beyond the world that we can see, feel, and touch. That it extends beyond this present world and into the life, the world which is to come. It's a, per, it's a transcendent meaning, transcendent significance. So why did God choose to create man? The Bible teaches the whole purpose of our life is, is to bring him glory. That is exactly why we are here on this earth. Isaiah 43, 7. God says, everyone who is called by my name, and he says, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. See, God is very clear about why he created mankind. It's, it, it's for his glory. We are created to know God, to enjoy God, to serve God, to honor God. Now, left to ourselves, we fail to live up to our created purpose. But when we come to Jesus Christ, he redeems us from the sin, the sin which frustrates the fulfillment of our created purpose. And in Jesus Christ, we are reconnected to transcendent meaning, to lasting purpose, to eternal significance. The truth of God being man's creator is the most, one of the most basic truths to our existence. Now those who deny that man is created by God must logically de deny the meaning to all of life. Now some secular naturalists are, are honest about this at least. One such secular naturalist is an existentialist by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. Perhaps you've read him in a philosophy class in college. But listen to what Jean-Paul Sartre said about life. At least he was being honest here. He remarked, Life is an empty bubble floating on a sea of nothingness. Kind of gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling, does it not? Life is an empty bubble floating on a sea of nothingness. Now there is a secularist who at least is honest. He doesn't try to bring in biblical significance into a secular worldview. He realizes he can't. <laughs> Such is life without God. It is an empty bubble floating on a sea of nothingness. This is the logical conclusion of the atheistic evolutionist. Ra for random, impersonal, mechanical systems cannot impart meaning. They cannot impart significance. They cannot impart life. If we are to have meaning, we must begin with God. And thankfully, that is where God begins his revelation. In the beginning, God created, <laughs> right? He tells us about himself so that he would know that our life has meaning when we connect it back to him. But what we cannot do is we cannot believe that God created our life with transcendent meaning while at the same time believing that other people's lives do not possess this God-created meaning. That would be a contradiction of the grossest sort. Each baby in the womb is created to bring God glory. Now that includes the baby who possesses severe physical 
mental deformities. That baby was, was created by God in his image for his glory with transcendent meaning and purpose. That includes the baby who will live only a few minutes outside of the womb before it dies. That includes the baby who dies while yet in the mother's womb. Each baby, every one of them, is created to reveal God's goodness, His greatness, His grace, and His glory. Furthermore, God imparts not just a general purpose to our lives in Jesus Christ, but God gives us very specific ways in which we are to bring Him glory. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He had ordained before the worlds began. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God had, has, from the very beginning of time, a specific purpose for how you are to bring Him glory. Specific works for you to accomplish so that you might lift up the praise of His name in this world. That is your purpose. That is your significance. That is the meaning of your life. It's wrapped up in the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. Often when an abortion is discussed in a family or in a clinic, the question is asked about the consequence of the birth of the baby. Consequences for the mother, consequences for the extended family, sometimes consequences for the child. In asking these questions, man believes that he is wiser than God, that he can discern whether another human being has purpose or has meaning and whether or not that purpose or meaning is large enough to be worthy of, of allowing that life to continue a college professor presented this challenging situation for his ethics class to consider. A man has syphilis and his wife has tuberculosis. They have four children. One has already died. The other three have terminal illnesses. The mother is pregnant. What do you recommend? You see, man in his foolishness dares to ask these questions. What? What are the consequences of allowing this child to be born in this world? Is it, will it be worth it? <laughs> believes in asking this question that he is wiser than God. So the professor asks, what do you recommend? Well, the class, of course, voted to terminate this pregnancy. They gave all sorts of reasons for it to justify it. And as they done so, did so, the professor told them that they had just taken the life of Beethoven, one of the most significant, great composers of the age, of, of, of mankind. <clears throat> or consider again, a 13-year-old girl is tragically raped, and she becomes pregnant because of it. What do you recommend? Now, by everyone's estimation, this is a painful, traumatic, tragic circumstance. But I ask you to think about this question. What do you recommend? Is a child conceived out of the biological trauma of a rape still a child created by God? Or, or did someone else, some other being, create that child? Does this little one have an eternal soul? Does this baby have a purposeful life? If you would have terminated the pregnancy of that 13-year-old girl, you would have robbed the world of Ethel Waters, the great gospel singer who teamed up with Billy Graham and was so used by God in her life, her meaningful, transcendent, purposeful life of, of service to bring glory to God and to bless so many people. Let me ask you a personal question. Do you feel like your life has transcendent purpose? 
do you know that there is something transcendent, eternal, something big and huge for which you can wake up each day and embrace and enjoy? Do you know that personally for yourself? Perhaps you say, honestly, no, I, I, I don't know that. You know, I, I get up in the morning, I go to work, I come home, I sleep, and then I get up and go to work again. That's my life. Friends, only in Jesus Christ and an intimate, passionate connection to him that you will find that kind of meaning. The kind of meaning when you wake up in the, in the morning, you recognize my life has eternal significance because it is connected to God and God has something great for me to do today to bring him glory. To bring him glory. For it is Jesus Christ who connects us back to God so that we can enjoy him and glorify him. Second truth we want to look at today about the nature of man is not only that man is created by God, but man is created in the image of God. Let's continue to read verse 26 and 27 now. Then God said, let us make man in our image. It's interesting, by the way, that God moves from commanding to consulting. He says, let us. He's consulting with himself. And we're introduced here, I believe, to the doctrine of the Trinity, amazing doctrine. So many doctrines are packaged in this first few chapters of Genesis. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now notice what's emphasized here. You can't miss it, can you? Four times, four times God says, in our image, in our likeness, in his own image, in the image of God, all out of all the creatures that God has created, only one is uniquely stamped with his image. No other creature, however cute, cuddly, affectionate, and warm they are, <laughs> whether it's the, the puppy in our household or the cat or the bird that we have in the cage, no other creature is created in the image of God. They're created by God spectacularly with wonderful wonderful uh, consequences, but, but no other creature is created by God in his own image. Only one is stamped with his likeness. And every human being from conception is stamped with this image. Well, what does it mean, though, when God says he made us in his likeness, in his image? In short, it means that man is like God in certain ways. Now, man is unlike God in many ways. But God, man is like God in certain ways. So how is man like God? Well, man is given an inner sense of right and wrong, a moral compass, a conscience, a, an ethical system. Furthermore, man is given a consciousness of eternity. Eternity is set in our hearts. We know that there's something beyond this life. We just, kinda, we just know that. This, this can't be all there is. Man is given a deep capacity for intimate relationships, for community. Man possesses the ability to communicate complex ideas and feelings, particularly ideas about God himself. Man is given a built-in idea of God, a longing for worship, to connect with the Creator. In these ways and many others, man is made in God's image. And God created man in his own image so that man might know him and worship him and enjoy him in deep fellowship. Man's crowning glory is to be intimately related to the creator. Now, if this is the way that I am made, someone asks, 
Why do I feel so distant from God? Why don't I feel and experience this passionate, intimate relationship, fellowship, walk with a living God? Why does he seem so distant? And the answer to that question, of course, is given for us in Genesis chapter 3. It tells us that man, every day, would walk with God in the cool of the day in the garden until the day that Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God in sin and death came upon them. That's to say that they became separated from God. And then this sin and this death passed upon every human being born in the world since Adam and Eve. So we're born with a sense that we should be connected with God, but we're not. We're separated from Him. Now, after man disobeyed God, you think that God would have just said, okay, I'm writing you off, I'm starting another world, but He didn't. He extended grace and mercy to these rebels just as He extends grace and mercy to us. He still offers us hope that this relationship, this created purpose that is given to us, can be renewed, can be restored. We can connect with God in vibrant relationship. Genesis 3, verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. They recognized him to be holy, and they weren't holy. But God, the Lord God called to man, Where are you? Where are you? You see, God is a seeking and saving God. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The first couple, Adam and Eve, were lost, and God went to meet them. Has God come to meet with you, to seek and to save you? And if he does, have you opened up your heart? Have you said, yes, I need to connect to the purpose, the reason why I'm here on this earth, and I recognize the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. This is what Jesus says in John 17. He says, and he's praying to the Father, he says, you granted him, and he's talking about himself, you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. He goes on to say in John 17, 3, now this is eternal life that, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You see, the truth that we are made in the image of God begs for a completion. It begs for a restoration. It begs for redemption. And this is precisely what Jesus offers us. The Apostle Paul talks about God's plan of restoration, of this return to life connected with God in Ephesians 2. He says, first, by grace you have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from a, a life apart from God, separated from God forever and ever. It's by grace you've been saved, you've been rescued, redeemed through faith, faith in Jesus. And this is not from yourselves, it's all a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now the huge practical implication behind this truth regarding the image of God is this, because every person has created the image of God, every human life is sacred. God's image is not reserved for certain races, certain genders, certain people with certain physical abilities or mental abilities or a certain duration of life. No, every human being, regardless of their physical, mental, social abilities, bears in their persons, in their soul, their spirit, their body, the image of God indelibly stamped upon their life. From the baby in the womb to the elderly in the nursing home, the stamp of God's image upon a person makes a person's life sacred. 
And that is the reason why, Christian, that abortion is a contradiction to a person who believes in the Scripture, who believes the Gospel, who believes what God says about us and about himself. On January 12, 2009, Samantha Hagees, age 23, was sentenced to 25 years in prison for drowning her newborn baby in Burnsville, Minnesota. Now here's the logical contradiction. If Samantha had arranged for a doctor just a few weeks early to come to her, she could have paid him. He could have profited to kill that same child. Isn't that a, isn't that a strange contradiction? A few weeks later, she's spending 25 years in prison. A few weeks before, everyone would have been happy and everyone would, the society would have approved. This makes no sense. You see, we have a choice to make, don't we? Either all human life is sacred or no human life is sacred. Logically, it cannot be that some human life is sacred, but others are not. And so because of the image of God, the healthy and the strong have no right to destroy the weak and the helpless. This is God's argument against the evil of murder. In Genesis 9, God would say, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. Why is that? Why is there such a profound consequence? For in the image of God has God made man. God is saying man has no right to take the life of another because every life has my stamp. This is God's argument also against verbally mistreating other people. In James chapter 3, verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, and then James says, who have been made in the image of God. For out of the same mouth come praising and cursings. My brother, this should not be so. It's interesting here, isn't it? That the argument is, is not, well, uh, speak kindly and don't curse other people. Why is that? Because you know, Christians are to be nice. That's not the argument. The argument is this, don't curse another human being. Why not? Because they've been made in the image of God. And if you mistreat them verbally, you're mistreating God verbally. That's the argument. So much pain and suffering and atrocity is born in this world because man refuses to acknowledge this simple, simple truth about other men and women and children. I told you we're going to be very brief with point tr truth number three, and that is that man is created male and female, and you could read verses 27 through 29 to read about that, and it's amazing about how God has created the family, and he has designed, again, a methodology for continuing this likeness in man through the family, through a, the commitment of a man and a woman together, and in the context of covenant love and covenant commitment, right? We move on to the fourth truth. God created man to be holy. Look at verse 31 with me. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if, if uh, that's the way the create this story would have ended? Just And they lived happily ever after. That's not the way the story ends. It's the Bible story, and it's really the story not just of, of Adam and Eve, but it's the story of humanity, right? It's the big story that connects all other stories together. And here's what the story tells us, that after God created this world and created man, male and female, and, and so the potential family who started community, he said it was very good, but then Genesis 3 comes and Adam and Eve partook of the fruit that they were told not to eat of, for the day they ate of it, they would surely die. 
Man lost his holiness. We're created for holiness, for purity, so that there's no shame and guilt in our relationship with God. How can we get our holiness back? Not by our own efforts. We cannot make amends for our own sins. We, we don't need just merely renewal. We need a regeneration. We need a new life inside of us. We need a Savior. Thankfully, we have one in Jesus. If any man is in Jesus Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Isn't it awesome to live a new life? Do you have that new life? Are you experiencing it? Are you enjoying it every day? We need regeneration. And I know that there are many people in church who pray a prayer at some point. But friends, it is not praying a prayer that connects you back to holiness. If there are not new desires inside of you, new desire for holiness, new desire to pursue God, I'm not talking about if there's not a perfectly sinless life, then you ought to question your relationship with God. But I'm saying if there's not this real connection and real desires and say, I want to live for the glory of God, you should ask the question, have I been made a new creation? It's only God that can do that. I can't produce that in myself, but God graciously does that to anyone who calls upon him. Now, there are two social issues for which each Christian bears responsibility in light of these foundational truths. Abortion and adoption. And this is where I want to drive home some specific applications, and this is where you may become upset with me. I don't know. God rejoices when his people treasure the person in the womb. Abortion is a human decision by a person to end the life of another person created in God's image. Let me say that again. Abortion is a human decision by a person to end the life of another person who is created in God's image. So what are we as believers responsible to do? First, we are responsible to love and minister to women who are tempted to commit this great evil. There is much temptation for many women to participate in this grievous sin. I do not make light of the temptation. I know that it must be pressing and strong for many. It comes from all directions. It, it might come from a parent, sometimes even a Christian parent, to pressure a teenage daughter to get an abortion. It can come from a boyfriend. It might even come internally often from one's own aspirations and goals in life. We must minister in love to women who are tempted. In our own city, we have ministries like the Women's Pregnancy Center, the Esther House, to give time and money and help to show compassion and to serve women who are vulnerable to the sin. Let's get involved. Secondly, we're responsible to bring God's grace to women who have had abortions. The guilt of this sin is deep and profound for women who have made sinful choices. We must share with them the hope of the gospel. If there's hope that they can be renewed to holiness and rightness with God and with others. Perhaps some of you have committed this sin in your life. Perhaps in committing that sin, you've, you've not told anyone. You've lived with it in silence because the shame and guilt of that sin is so strong that you've, you've just withdrawn and, and kept that part private, separate. Friends, I, I believe that Bethany Community Church is a church that would open their arms and, and help you as you speak and talk about, about your past actions and that certainly God is a God who will restore you as you confess your sin to Him. Third, I believe we are responsible to vote for pro-life candidates. Yes, we are called to use other political means to press for the legal protection of the unborn, 
but know that the most powerful tool in the hands of a United States citizen is the vote. As a Christian, I cannot vote for a pro-abortion candidate. I have voted for candidates from both political parties, but I cannot vote for one who is a party to the legal slaughter of millions of innocents each year. Some with an air of sophistication would say, well, I'm not a one-issue voter. I ask what issue could possibly be bigger than this one? Taxes, economy, welfare, environment. If we let ourselves think about the legalized killing of unprotected children, what problem even comes close to the atrocity of this one? How can we love our neighbor, our helpless unborn neighbor, and then vote for the person who advances the right to put them to death? I ask, could a Christian in Germany in 1940s look at a Jewish neighbor and in love say to them, you know, I'm sorry but I'm voting for Adolf Hitler this year. I'm not a one-issue voter. Could they do that in love? I don't believe they could. Now, when we vote for a candidate, we are participants with them in their stated plans. Sometimes a candidate acts differently than what he or she says during a campaign. We're not guilty when a candidate breaks his or her promises, but when a candidate promises to pursue the right and funding of every woman to abort their babies and we vote for him or her, we are active parties in their deaths. For we have provided the candidate with the power to carry out his or her designs. Fourth, choose pro-life physicians. One of the first questions to ask a doctor, I believe, especially in OBGYN, but I think it's a good question to ask all doctors, is are you pro-life? <laughs> Do you believe in abortion? If that doctor believes in abortion, I believe it's time to find another doctor. I can't honor him. can't honor him or her. Right? Fifth application, keep talking and thinking about this issue. You know, read more. One of the great books that I've read recently, Why Pro-Life by Randy Alcorn. There's many others. But your opinion shapes the opinions of your friends. Don't be afraid of controversy. You're going to have controversy when you talk about this issue. But don't be afraid of it. Be smart. Be really smart and wise. Be gracious, be, but be bold. You know, I, I would suggest instead of just boldly just charging in and say, hey, abortion's murder. <laughs> Ask questions to get your friends thinking about this issue. Ask questions like, do you think it's right to abort a baby on the basis of gender? Do you know that's happening all over the world? Do you realize in the cities in China that two out of every three babies that are born are males? In the countryside, three out of every four babies that are born are males. Why is that? Because of abortion? Selective abortion on the basis of gender? Ask questions like, when do you think a baby possesses human rights? When does a baby become a person? What do you think about the situation in which one physician is working in one room to save the life of a 23-week-old baby and the next room, a physician is working actively to take the life of a 23-week-old baby and tell them that is happening in the United States. It's happening. What do you think about that? Sixth application, share the gospel. It is the gospel that brings hope to those who are afflicted by sin, it's the gospel that transforms the heart and the mind. This is what's ultimately needed. Don't be fearful of even sharing the gospel with doctors who abort children, nurses who are part of that process. For abortion, doctors and nurses have been completely changed in the past by the gospel, and they will continue to be. We are ambassadors of the life of God. 
And finally, the last application, if you're tempted to abort your baby or to encourage your teenage daughter to abort, pray for God's grace to empower you not to commit this grievous sin and choose life for this baby. Just a few comments about adoption, and I, I, I know that you're a strong church in this area, so I'll just relate to a few encouragements to you. Just one encouragement in this realm. There is no such thing as an unwanted baby. There is no such thing. Not as long as the church of Jesus Christ is present. The baby may not be wanted by a mother, but it is wanted by God's people. And if you're tempted because you think, I don't want this baby, and I don't know if anyone else wants, wants a baby, I would urge you and encourage you, bring the baby to Jesus' church. Bring him here. Bring them here. Bring them Bethany Baptist. Bring them to Living Hope. We will see that they are loved and cared for. Now, I know, I, I speak with some fear and trembling when I say that, but I say that with great conviction that we as the church must want and desire to care for these babies. A friend of mine in South Africa, Dave Beakley, just talked about the flood of orphans coming across the border from, from uh, Zimbabwe into South Africa. And there was a church near him that on one day had 4,000 orphans show up. What does a church do? I don't know what the church will do, what this church would do or what our church would do if we had 4,000 babies show up or children to show up tomorrow. But I'll tell you, we would get busy to say, we need to do something. Not one of these children can be left unwanted or unloved, right? Sometimes I proudly ask myself the question, how could the Christians in 1940s Germany turn a blind eye to the great evil in their own country? How could that happen? <laughs> You know, and thankfully some Christians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer could not, but the majority of Christians' eyes were closed to the great wickedness before them, and in pride I say, how could that happen? It's easy to think that we would act differently now, but the old man's last words are haunting. Remember he said it's happening all over again in America with abortion. The Holocaust is here. May God awaken us so that the conscience of our nation might be roused. We need the spiritual revival. And won't you with me pray, God, revive my own heart. God, revive my own family. God, revive our church so that we might live to the praise of the glory of your grace. Amen and amen. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your kindness to us. Thank you, Father, that you've created us in your image so that we are permanently, indelibly stamped with purpose and meaning connected to you through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'd help us as a church to be faithful to the responsibilities that you've given us, particularly in the realm of the sacredness of human life. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.